When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. This is Podcaster and Commander an audio documentary podcast series about the seafaring classic Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. The series will be an oral history of the film's conception and production, a discussion of the film's critical reception, and the increasing resonance in the now 20 years since its release. The first personalities that we see on the boat are guns. The cannons are anthropomorphic defenders, standing guard for the precious human cargo below. Jumping Billy, sudden death. We are the passengers of the light bearer, hunched as he moves to the final stop on his tour of the surprise. In just over a minute, we've completely established the bounds of the space. The often ignored segments of reality for sailors in this period of history. Weir was an immense fan of O'Brien the novelist, from which the movie is based, and the author's fastidiousness of details acknowledged and translated and rendered in such immaculate visual specificity. We arrive at an hourglass, being tapped so the last granules of sand are encouraged to trickle through their funnel before it flips over. A watch change. Not only for the sailors aboard the surprise, but for us. Time. From this moment out, we're not going to be measuring time in the same scale. The bell chimes and the emblazoned red of the British soldier's uniform is the first bold and primary colour we've seen in the film orienting you to the period in a way. There's a responsibility in the time, an order. It's not merely a lower-ranked shipman, but rather a soldier with a weapon, guarding the rigour and the structure. The comforting chime doesn't boom. The gentle reminder isn't a harsh alarm. 
The steady bumps are a watch change. Then, in the harmonic vibrations of the bell humming into the silence, the crew shimmy from the upper rigging down to the bottom of the ship. It's another nod to those in the rafters, in the rigging, and behind the camera, orchestrating the wonders we're about to see. They're the puppeteers of this wooden being, steering, shaping, empowering its journey through a perilous ocean. And like clockwork, as the slow push zooms in, it refocuses. This isn't simply a watch crew leaving their posts, but it's a synchronized dance. People climbing to their posts as those who have finished descend. So who's on this watch? Co-writer of Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, John Colley. You've just got to let the dream speak to you and uh, and, uh, and not try and deconstruct it, because otherwise you might destroy the magic. Academy Award-winning director of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Peter Ramsey. For me, that's his essence is, you know, a guy who can take a story that's happening in a, in a world that, you know, we know with preoccupations we all get, but infuse this like deeper layer of, uh, of meaning and questioning into it. Author and TV producer, Lee Zachariah. Everything is played to a modern eye. Whenever you have a character in the past who speculates about the future or who is a pioneer in something that the audience is familiar with, there is always a knowing wink. Even in many mature works, flaws me that we are resistant to this. Even, even hinting at this, it is so, it is so sincere. Writer and director of Night Owls and co-host of the official Mission Impossible podcast, Light the Fuse, Charles Hood. I mean, now, as I mean, Truman Show and, and Master Commander are two of my absolute favorite movies. I've watched Truman Show probably like 10 times in the last like three years. I just keep going back to it for some reason. I'm becoming more and more obsessed with that movie. And I think for me as a filmmaker, I'm like, this is the epitome of what I would want to make as a movie. Staff writer and social media manager for Secret Handshake and freelance writer for publications like Vulture, action film aficionado, Brandon Strasnick. Weir is really special because I think he's so, um, he's not in a hurry to get to where he's going. And, and especially in Master and Commander, it doesn't make it boring or slow. It actually lets you live with these people. Your narrator for the series is me, Ken Jacob. Theme doctor, Andrew Villa. And I am your captain, Blake Howard. Episode two. Jumping aboard the HMS Surprise. Let's continue our conversation with writer of Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, John Colley. And we'll continue to unpack his relationship with Peter Weir and the lead up to the production. And... And the other element, I mean, the other thing that makes this story a difficult adaptation is that there are so many characters. You know, you have a yes. ship and it's got like a crew of 120 men in real life. It's a, it's a, it's a massive population of people. And uh, even if we just deal with the guys who are given, um, you know, star billing in, uh, in O'Brien's telling, there's still about 20 people, you know, spread among the officers, the, the young midshipmen, the crew. And so how do you kind of, as a writer, how do you deal with all of these many relationships? And to give you an example of that, um, and the way that we kind of, I guess, complemented each other creatively was uh, there's a scene in it where um, um, Warley and another guy, so two, two crew members, um, are uh, 
um, obliged to cut loose the mast which was fallen over the uh, fallen over the back of the ship as they round Cape Horn, and uh, and in the water, clinging to the wreckage as their as their great friends, and um, and as we're as we're sort of acting out and, and talking through the scene to each other, I say, well, okay, as I see it. Um, our guy runs the back of the ship. He sees his friend in the water. Um, Jack runs up and says, we've got to cut the mast loose because the mast is bringing the ship around into the waves and it's going to swamp us. It's either your friend lives or, um, or the ship lives, you know. So, uh, and he presents our guy with an axe. And the guy then has to, to chop off the mast as he's weeping into him and cutting, cutting the hawsers. And finally, he sees his friend be kind of consumed by the storm and say, well, so, so that's my version of the story. I'm talking to Peter. Um, and, and Peter says, yeah, but what about so-and-so who's up the mast? And what about so-and-so? <laughs> and I realized that even though I'm seeing this kind of very limited dramatic kind of um, simplified dramatic um, expression of the story and... Uh, and what he's seeing is kind of the whole film. He's <laughs> seeing all the incidental characters. So it's that thing again of like uh, the simple version of the story and then the very complex version of the story and, and uh, allowing these two to merge and to uh, inform each other. You know, the dinner scene in Master and Commander when he's telling the story about Nelson, you know, and the kids being, the kids being, you know, oh, can you please tell me what he said? And, and Aubrey makes the joke about the salt. And you can see the kids like, oh, God. And then Crow, like, turns on a dime and then gets, uh, has that earnest, like, just that beautiful, like, genuine moment. And the, the they, you know, they go to those longer lenses and the candlelight's in the foreground and the light is just beautiful and soft and, and just molded. And it's just, it's just, there's so many moments in that movie that are, that, like, your heart just, like, Oh man, and and you don't expect to see it in a story like that. You don't expect to get that from, you know, if you're just taking it at face value, you know, oh, it's about British guys on the sea, on the open sea and the tough ass captain and the you know scurvy guys under the decks, but it's just the way that he adds so many layers to all these characters. Almost every character, there's like, there's like, there's something just around the corner that he exploits and gives you just that little bit more. And it's just fantastic. And it's just, just the amount of story that he packs into that movie is astonishing. The jokes aren't funny. So why do we keep laughing at them? Why are they so good? Like, I mean, the lesser of two weevils, what is that? It's so good though. And it's Patrick O'Brien is obsessed with terrible puns. And it works because I think because you're not expecting it. Like if you, if you just drop a joke into a scene and and it comes from a place of character because the joke is that they're laughing at the doctor they're not quite getting it like if everyone laughs along with it the scene doesn't work no and like the may i trouble you for the salt moment um there, there are just so many so many moments where you're able a lot of goodwill comes from the fact that we're invested in these characters and that these are the jokes that they would make. You know, they're not going to be doing, you know, Groucho Marx level humor while they're, you know, sailing in the Napoleonic Wars. These are just guys who have picked up jokes along the way and dropped them at one another's expense. And it's kind of great. Like, you isolate these jokes and you would not think to put them in 
in a film like this, but in context, they are brilliant. Some some films you kind of you crack it quite quickly. Some films, you know, uh, Scott Hicks when he made Shine, that script was he was developing that script for ten years, and that's you know that's a, a wonderful and awful thing about this business oh. is that it can take it can take forever. And um, it was a very stormy um, road with Martin Mander, even though it came together quite quickly. Um, we um, we sort we solved the middle section, and then we get to okay. Then the two ships have got to meet and they've got to fight. And and when you get to the ending, then you've got to decide all over again. Well, what is this? What is this story about? What are what are the two forces that are really battling each other here? And what do they represent? And that'll give us our ending. And we had actually the ending of the book is is rather kind of decrescendo. It's a, it's um, Two ships both get wrecked on the Galapagos, and the two crews then end up with this rather crappy fight on a beach, seen by Stephen Maturin through a telescope because he's off botanizing, and that wasn't going to work. And we had we had various uh, forms of the ending, and at this point, it was looking as though the whole thing might fall over um, because we had Peter and we had Fox on board, but we didn't have a star yet, and we didn't have a we didn't have a a script to attract the star, and and that's the point of which Russell uh, Crowe, who um, sort of just because he, um, he admired Peter's filmmaking so much, that's when Russell came on board and said, "Look, I know you've not got your ending yet, but I'll do it." And then suddenly the whole thing got a new burst of energy because uh, Russell was so supremely bankable. And then Peter came up with the idea of um, the way that they finally take on the other ship and defeat it is by using Stephen Maturin's satanical knowledge um, to make uh, so imagine him studying these insects that copy other bits of nature in order to disguise themselves so, so the idea of this disguise comes from Maturin's knowledge and uh, and Aubrey, Jack Aubrey embraces it and they, they decide to disguise the ship and take on take on the French enemy that way. And and once you've got that ending, then suddenly you go, all oh, right, so this whole story is about a man of science and contemplation with a man of action and adventure. And the question of the whole center of the story is, can, are these two things reconcilable? And the ending is yes, that a, a man of contemplation picks up a sword and, and agrees to fight, and a man of action and adventure um, learns from his friend and uh, uh, and uses his knowledge to achieve his goals. And so there's a wonderfully satisfying uh, kind of symmetry to that, you know. And um, uh, therefore we had our ending, we had our star, and suddenly it was all just going to go. Weir and Collie stumble upon something so profound, yet not simple, but rather elemental. Action or reason. Fight, think. So in letting the riches of this movie wash over, author, producer, film critic, Lee Zachariah, stumbled down a rabbit hole. And where his stumble started was right here.
Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, has an incredible score. Composed by Ivor Davies, Christopher Gordon, and Richard Ognetti. But this particular song, Fantasia on a Theme, is by Thomas Tallis. Lee is a man after my own heart, a true obsessive. And after years of passively consuming this incredible score, some quick research on the origins of Fantasia on a Theme and Thomas Tallis, how he came upon it and how he's inspired by it, unlocked an entire theory aligned very much to the central conflict of Master and Commander. Here's Lee. This has to have one of the best scores yeah. I've ever heard. I've I've uh, listened to this at least 50 times, and that's not an exaggeration. I checked my iTunes uh, and it said <laughs> I'm, at, I'm at 51 listens on, on that program alone. Ivor Davis, Christopher Gordon, and Richard Tognetti did something extraordinary. And I didn't realize until this viewing that the, the score doesn't kick in until the 13 minute mark. Yeah. You know, music is always used to build tension. Here, Weir holds off until, you know, we are, we are on the edge of our seats with the tension and he just drops the music in and, you know, your heart bursts out of your chest from the stress of, of, of this moment. And it's just, it's so cleverly deployed. Uh, the, the folk music, the classical music, the original score, it all, you know, it, it almost looks like a hodgepodge of grabbing different styles from different eras and putting them together. And it just, every decision is perfect. It just works perfectly. And we of course have to talk about Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis. Mm. One of the greatest pieces of music ever written and probably the best version of it that I've ever heard. I mean, it's deployed so cleverly, but I got, I, I, I've really become quite obsessed with this piece of music. And, and it's, it's so interesting to me that Thomas Tallis wrote the original theme in 1567. Um, he was an English Renaissance composer and he wrote it inspired by the second psalm or psalm two. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. You know, Psalm 2 is, is interpreted as being about a future Messiah. So he wrote this, uh, this Renaissance piece, and Vaughan Williams, hundreds of years later, was listening to it. And the more he listened to it, the more he came to associate it with another religious text, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, a, a, a novel uh, that thought to be the first book ever written in English, published in the 17th century, about a man in search of the truth. And he came to associate it with that, and then he essentially remixed it into Vaughan Williams' Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis. That was first performed in 1910. A century later, it would be put into this film. This is a conversation across the centuries because it would be 100 years from Thomas Tallis writing that piece of music to the Pilgrim's Progress coming out. That was a century. We think of the past as compressed, but that was 100 years between him writing that and the Pilgrim's Progress, which centuries later, Vaughan Williams would come to see those two pieces, the first English novel ever written and this old English chamber piece as being deeply intertwined. And he would take that inspiration, turn it into something new, and then it would 
be deployed in this film. And I'm sure it was deployed because it was a beautiful piece of music and that it evokes something. I don't, I don't know if it had ever been, uh, been used in a film before, but certainly this is the film that's most deeply associated with. And I can't hear that music without being transported back to the high seas. And I just find that so many films attempt to be epic and can't, can't quite get there because they think that epic means visual, not chronology. Epic yeah. is something that takes place over a long period of time. That, that, that's how we truly understand, you know, the, the size and the weight of things. This happens over centuries. This is a conversation happening through the ages. And the more I think about it, the more I think the pilgrim is the doctor. He is the one in search of truth. And thinking about this has changed my perception of the film because I now wonder if it's more about him than Aubrey. Like everything we think, the things that we think are connected from our view in history, they're distorted. They're in the wrong order. But that's okay because we're reinterpreting them. Once you decide what your film is about, then you go back through it and you find all these resonances. You know, so there's a young um, uh, cabin boy in it called Blakesney, who's a who's a young guy who idolizes Jack, but loses his arm early on and, and forms a relationship with Maturin. And 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 Blakesney says in the middle of the film, um, "Is there to to um, to Stephen Maturin to um, uh, uh, to try and." work out what his own future is going to be if he goes home with a missing arm. Can he still be a fighting captain? And so he says to Maturin, is there such a thing as a fighting naturalist? Yes. And that is the central question of the movie. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and he's, he becomes the son of two fathers. He becomes <laughs> the son of two fathers. In a way. And, yeah. And, you know, often with period drama, you're trying to look at why it's relevant to here and now. And I think why, as you said, that that film has become a kind of a really great meditation on the meaning of masculinity is that that's what we we're still wrestling with that question nowadays you know is there some way of um of sort of being both the john wayne man of action and the death band um man of contemplation which is reality of most of our lives and um and yes you can square that over you can combine these two things this is ultimately a film about man versus nature and not in, I think, the traditional sense, um, but the rules of nature versus the rules that men impose upon themselves and upon one another. There are two characters at the heart of this film. One is a healer and one is a fighter. They're as close as any two people can be, but 
on, on, a, on a purely nature level, on a natural level, they work against one another. You know, one damages people, like physically damages people for reasons of politics, and the other heals them for reasons of nature, because that's that's what we should do, we should heal. And because this film is about duality, I keep coming back to the title, like Master and Commander. When I first heard that, before I saw the film, I assumed, oh, okay, one is Aubrey and one is Maturin. And then later I was like, oh, they're both Aubrey. I see. But now I just keep thinking, are they both? Is it more ambiguous than we give it credit for? Yeah. Is it possible that one of them or both of them is mature? And is there some sort of, is something that sounds so firm and decided, master and commander, is there a struggle at the heart of that title that, that we, we don't quite understand? Um, nature wins. Always when we talk about saving the planet, the planet's going to be fine. It's us, our ability to live on it that we want to save. Nature will win in some form or another. The Doctor is right in some ways, in many ways, about his criticism of the Navy and its rules. You know, you think back to, to the scene where the lack of a salute ultimately leads to one man being whipped and another man taking his own life. And yet, when it comes time in that big final battle, when it comes time to take them on, when they have to disguise themselves, they're ordered not to salute. By disobeying the strict rule of the Navy, that is what allows them to survive. You strip back the rules of men, and that's how you win the day. On the other hand, it's the discipline that allows them to fight back. That's not nature, That the way they all work together like that. That's not something that comes natural, particularly to humans. Um, so the argument is not as clear cut as we think it is. The film is so much cleverer than it appears at first blush. It reveals itself over time and the more you dig into it, the more you realize it's, it's doing a lot of very complicated things at once and it's telling you something different every time you watch it, once you, you dig a little deeper. There is a passionate argument between the two leads based on one having a desire to explore natural history. When has Hollywood ever done that? <laughs> like, I want to go naturing. It, it's, that blows my mind that that was in a big budget film. And, and it's kind of, it's one of the many things I love. I, I want to go look at bugs. That's the heart of the film. And, and what's interesting is that because the specific stakes of this argument are so personal, this is a, an argument between do we save person X or person Y, like which direction do we go in? There's no objective threat at the heart of this argument. It's all about the personal. It's about one character breaking a promise to the other. And it gives it the tenor. It doesn't quite register at first, but ultimately what you're seeing is a lover's stat yeah. because it is about someone breaking their promise to their loved one. You know, this is a real relationship. It may as well be romantic. We we know that they make beautiful music together. We get to see that in multiple scenes. We know, we also know that um, Maturin is the most important thing to Aubrey because look at what he gives up to save him. The thing that we think is most important to Aubrey, he gives that up to save Maturin's life and, and in doing so gives him the thing that he wants. And then 
Maturin in return gives up the thing that he wants for Aubrey. It is the most romantic relationship we have seen from Hollywood in the last two decades. <laughs> and I stand by that. But with Master and Commander, I feel like it's interesting, interesting because Truman Show fits in really well with Peter Weir's other movies. I mean, I feel like his movies are kind of about somebody rebelling against some kind of prison or an institution or society and its rigid traditions. And in this movie, Russell Crowe's character, is he's determined to uphold the traditions of the Royal Navy. And, and that's like at every step of the way okay, that he is. And, but he's not viewed as, as much of a villain as I feel like other similar characters would be in Peter Weir's other movies. This is our hero of the movie. And then you get the, the, the Paul Bettany character. And I feel like the Paul Bettany character who I'm just in love with, he's so good in this movie and their relationship is everything. It's the heart of the movie. Like Paul Bettany, he would be the star of the other Peter Weir, of, an, of a normal Peter Weir movie. And instead he's got this like kind of love story, this bromance between the two of them who are antagonist, they're, you know, and Paul Bettany's, I mean, essentially the the primary antagonist of the movie. And, he, and you know, I feel like, you know, and he has different, I think, opinions of, of that character in different movies. I think Truman is very clearly the hero and there's no, like, you know, he, you want him out and you want him clear and he's trying to break against, break away against this, you know, suppressive, oppressive life that he's been put into. And, you know, you look at something like, uh, um, like fearless, yeah. fearless. I think he he is sort of he's uh, you know Jeff Bridges is kind of rebelling against these normal ideas of what it is um, of of normal society and stuff like that. And and there's a little bit like he he goes too far, you know. So there's like a little bit of a he's not quite 100 percent a hero. I feel like you know because he goes too far in his feeling. But it's just fascinating to me that 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 character, you know, Russell Crowe's character would be more like a villain in other Peter Weir movies. Wow. The flavor that they capture, the yeah. the spirit of it, the way that they distill it down. I mean, even even st stuff as simple as like, you know, the the music. The uh, who's it by uh, Boccherini? The yes. the duet that they're playing, yes. and the, just the like the the like little jaunty feel of that. It's like to me, there's a couple of notes in that that just sum up the spirit of the whole syrup. <laughs> That's got to be, that's the spirit of the whole series of books. They've got this lighthearted thing, but this energy to it that just is like, it's just, it's, uh, I keep, I keep trailing off and go, it's just, just amazing. <laughs> but that's, it's just his filmmaking just does that to me. It's it's just kind of sublime. That's it. Uh, it came out to make you to be on the set and hang out with the guys for a couple of weeks. But the, the truth is that your involvement as a writer in the filming process is inversely proportional to the budget. You know, on a really big budget movie like this, it's just a kind of, uh, um, it, it's, it's kind of really impossible to intervene in the script while it's, while it's, while the thing is moving forward because there's just so many people, so many departments and the whole thing is happening on an industrial scale. So whereas with a, with a small, uh, low budget art house movie you can actually be filming and rewriting and 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 uh, and working on it organically as it's being shot it's sort of um uh it's just a it's just a runaway train on a film of this size and uh so there's not a lot for the writers do except to hang out with the actors and have his picture taken yeah film was pretty bomb proof by the time um they took it off to film it 
at one point we uh, we handed in our, our final script to Fox and he said, well, this costs 120 million and um, and uh, and we can only afford 100 million. We've only budgeted 100 million on this and we can't make it. And so will you go through the script and take out the expensive scenes? And so Peter and I went through the script and we took out as far as possible the scenes that we thought were going to cost a lot of money and, and we handed it back to them and they said, it's still 120 million. And that's because that's because the the cost is in having a ship, a model of a ship, a ship on a tank, a real ship in the ocean, and as you say, a sort of a, a large crew of extras and extra uh, actors and extras who are who are in every have to be on every day shooting because they're going to be in the background. So, um, so it actually wasn't possible to get the budget down. And uh, luckily at that point, Russell Crowe signed up, and so. Um, they find an extra 20 million. Um, <laughs> There's so much you could say about the craft and about the epic sea battles and everything, but what I was really, really honing in on this last time was d- just how nice it felt to be able to live with these people. And I, I think about this every time I watch it, how I don't think there's a single action movie today that would take the the detour that this does to go to the Galapagos Islands. And in the middle of like this epic seafaring battle film, they just stopped to go look at bugs and lizards for like almost an hour. And it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> and I just wish more movies had that kind of patience, I guess, because like, you know, I never want to be, I, I never want to just, you know, join the chorus, even though I do feel similarly as many people do about Marvel and everything. But I feel like they, they're speed running, even though those movies are sometimes three hours long now. Like I think the most recent one Marvel movie is like almost three hours but I feel like they're constantly speed running through everything and you're not getting these moments where I feel like something that's like master and commander is like, I think two fifteen, two twenty, 20 maybe. And, and, and it's just, it's not concerned about getting from, you know, point A to point B to point C and then we're out. It's just, it, it, it almost feels like it's like taking this nice leisurely stroll and it's like, maybe something caught its eye off to the side and it's like oh let's go look at that for a little bit that seems lovely and and then we'll get back to the fighting don't worry and then when they do it's some of the best battles you'll ever see on film so it's like this just wonderful amalgamation that i just don't think exists anymore and it's i think the closest maybe that anything's come to it recently is the latest top gun because just because i think that that is one of the more recent giant blockbusters to you know, really let its characters breathe. And even then, I don't know if it does exactly what this is doing. This, I mean, there's so much to talk about, about the, the nature of, of Darwinism and adapting to survive, the way they all disguise themselves, the way their enemy has thought to disguise himself. Um, you know, Jack is fighting himself. He is fighting a mirror image of himself. It's there's so much duality going on everyone's a mirror and an opposite of of the other and it's i think i think because there are so many ideas at the heart of it and they're not they're not made obvious some of them are and others you have to dig to find but we innately understand that we're watching something special something that most films do not do it's telling us something about ourselves. It's not just an adventure on the high seas hundreds of years ago. It's a very profound film and it's a very romantic film. 
Podcaster and Commander is produced by Blake Howard on the far side of the world. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.